1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Ora Ugambi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: There's a widely held idea, not least within The Economist, that democratically run countries are better off economically. True, it may be, but immediate it is not. Well-run elections are pricey building robust democratic institutions takes time and cash.
2: And the Brits don't joke about their hobbies. From shooting birds to wild swimming, passionate hobbyists, or some might say hobby lobbies, have become a real pain for the government. We explain why.
1: First up, though.
3: Police say three people were shot on the city's west side. This was the scene last night near Madison and Leamington. Details about the shooting still unclear. All victims were taken to the hospital. At least one.
1: On Friday, a lethal drive by shooting on West 38th Street. Less than an hour later, a shooting fatality on South Wentworth Street. On Saturday, a man was found dead on West 58th with gunshot wounds to the chest. Later that day, on West Madison, a motorist strikes a man who then pulls a gun and shoots the driver multiple times, killing him. Chicago has earned its grim reputation for violent crime. But take a step back and there's a more hopeful trend emerging. Murder rates seem to be falling in many of America's urban centers.
4: In early August, I was on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Roseland.
1: Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent.
4: Over the past few years, particularly after the pandemic in 2020, there's been a huge surge of violence in the South Side of Chicago and and actually kind of across America in in neighbourhoods like this. It's been really bloody. But so far this year, gun violence has begun to fall, both in Roseland, across Chicago, and in fact, in cities across America.
1: So tell me about your trip. Who did you meet? What did you see?
4: So I went down to Roseland because there's a group down there called Chicago Cred, and it's this kind of violence interruption group. They send people out into the neighborhood to try and stop violence before it happens, to try and talk people out of getting involved in shootings. And I met with their outreach supervisor, who's a former gang member, a guy called Terence Henderson, who oversees their work.
5: We had a horrible first quarter in Roseland where we had... Uh, A few shooters that had us under our number from last year. We was in the red. Um, It was a high-profile shooting at Walmart. One of our local rappers, they got shot. And they had, like, some back and forth. So
4: he said that they had kind of a bad year to begin with. But this summer, and summer is really when violence tends to spike in Chicago and most American cities, it's been significantly improved compared to the last year and to the real kind of awful uh, periods of the last couple of years. So in the area that CRED covers down there, murders are down by about 20% so far this year. And they look to their own work for why that is. They have been out in the community trying to talk to people, trying to keep an eye on why violence might flare. But the fact is actually that violence has been falling kind of across Chicago. Compared to 2021, which was when murders peaked, the violence is down by 20%. And it's not only Chicago, where crime rates and murder rates seem to be falling.
1: Yeah, you said that seemed to be a pattern across America.
4: We don't have kind of national data yet, but, you know, there are organisations who do follow local city-level crime data. So there's one called the Council on Criminal Justice, and they have been following the homicide rate in 30 of America's biggest cities. And they show a 9% drop in the first half of this year. Another group that looks at 109 cities show a 12% drop in murder rates. And that's one of the biggest drops in one year in murder rates in history, essentially, although it comes from some of the biggest rises too. But it shows that basically murder rates seem to be falling again, particularly some of the cities that had these really huge spikes, like Minneapolis or Milwaukee, have seen very large drops so far this year, bigger even than that kind of 10% drop seen nationally. And what this seems to hint is that this huge kind of wave of violence that started really around the summer of 2020, you know, as the first kind of lockdowns ended and people came out, maybe coming to an end and maybe we're beginning to get back to something more like the pre-pandemic rates of violence.
1: And so what's behind that decline now?
4: Well, it's hard to say, but I think that the most common explanation when I was talking to criminologists about this is that really it is just the end of the pandemic. The pandemic caused this huge spike in violence, and it's quite hard to say why, but there was the murder of George Floyd, which led to Protests we've seen that in lots of places lead to immediate spikes in violence. There was also in 2020, 2021 huge increases in the sales of guns, and there were a lot of people were just having a miserable time. Social services were closed; people weren't able to have normal lives. They were sort of stuck out on the streets. So there are lots of ways in which the kind of disruption of the pandemic led to a spike in violence. And really, what's happening now it seems like is we're getting a bit back to something like normal. Kind of schools are back open, social services are running again. Relationships between people and the police have maybe cooled somewhat compared to the awfulness that they were a couple of years ago. And so violence seems to be coming down again.
1: And where do organizations like CRED, who you met, and good old-fashioned policing fit into that story, or do they?
4: Well, one of the things that really hasn't changed very much, I think, in the last couple of years has been the response of policing. Previous crime waves have crested when policing increased a lot, but the number of police officers on the streets is is still very low. There are lots of retired. So I don't think it's not policing. Whereas when you look at organisations like CRED, there's been this huge surge of investment in them. Pandemic relief money has gone into funding this sort of violence interruption model. And there's a lot of guys out on the street trying to stop it. There's also just that people, when they know that violence is more likely, take more precautions privately. So some of that might also explain why we're beginning to see violence kind of dip again.
1: So this discussion has been about violent crimes. Is that is that to say that crime more generally is down?
4: So violence crime is the thing that people worry about most, and the thing that's most easily tracked and that soared most in the pandemic. And that is mostly what's coming down. Some types of property crime, in particular, car theft. Is rising quite fast. But, you know, the thing to point out and that's worth stressing is that while this is kind of positive, murder rates so far this year are still a lot higher than they were in 2019 in most cities. And so we can't quite say that the post pandemic crime wave is over yet. And we can also see that things can change fast. So if you look at, for example, the city of Memphis in Tennessee, they have this awful police killing of a 29 year old black man, Tyre Nichols, in uh, January that led to these protests, and they've had a huge spike in their murder rates so far this summer. So something like that could happen again. You know, I think we can't really say that police have reformed that much that we won't get that sort of incident happen again elsewhere. So it's positive, but it's not a radical improvement just yet.
1: And not so long ago, we were speaking with you about how so many Americans die young. Where does this leave us? Where where does this fit into that broader picture?
4: So homicide is one of those things together with car crashes, with gun suicides, opioid overdoses that lead to Americans basically dying young. And the increase in homicide rates in the last few years is something that will have worsened life expectancy, in particular for certain communities, particularly for young black men. So the fact it's going down is positive, but it's going to have to go down an awful lot more if we... Uh, see American life expectancy recover some of the gap that it has grown with other countries.
1: And certainly matters of crime and of policing are a huge political hot button issue in America. Where does this story fit into that?
4: So in last year's midterms, you know, the Republican Party, they really pivoted to talking about crime in a lot of Senate races and how Democrats are weak and how murders have soared under Democratic mayors. So the fact that it's kind of beginning to come down murder rates, it will definitely be a relief I think to a lot of Democrats and to Joe Biden who found themselves in this tricky position between activists sometimes who've been very critical of policing and police who've been very critical of them. So they'll be relieved for sure. Joe Biden will claim the credit, but I think for him to really benefit crime rates will have to keep dropping.
1: Daniel, thanks very much for your time.
4: It's always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovation's paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.
1: Okay, got one for you. What do a protester in a failing dictatorship and an economist have in common? It sounds like the start of a pretty niche joke, but don't worry. The point here is that both share a steadfast belief in the obvious benefits of a certain political system.
3: They are both ardent Democrats. Protesters in ailing autocracies pose the vote and all its associated institutions as the path to a better life for everyone in their country.
1: Kerry and Richmond-Jones is an international economics correspondent for The Economist.
3: And from the perspective of economists, democratic institutions are good for economic growth.
1: And, and that is settled economic orthodoxy, is it? That economies benefit from democracy. It's, it's not that all democracies are rich.
3: Well, exactly how democracy and economic prosperity are linked is still very much up in the air. We may all think it's a good idea, but democracy is a surprisingly tricky concept to get your head around. Are elections enough? Is a country either a democracy or a non-democracy? Or can some democracies be more democratic than others? Added on to that, many studies are inconclusive. After all, China got rich under autocracy. Dictators are able to control the state, its resources and much of society. But one of the few things that, after decades of probing this link, economists do tend to agree on, is that the kind of institutions democracies build are very, very good for growth trustworthy governments, competent finance ministers, and reliable legal systems. Established democracy reinforces economic prosperity, and vice versa, actually. In a paper published in 2019, Darren Asimoglu of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and his co-authors split countries into dictatorships and democracies. They found that 25 years after making a permanent switch from the former camp to the latter, a country's GDP was one-fifth higher than it would otherwise have been.
1: OK, so it is settled science then, being a democracy, becoming a democracy, just generally good for the coffers.
3: Well, what's being re-evaluated now is the time needed for a country to find a democratic experiment that sticks, and how much democracy really costs a country to pursue. Old democracies are prosperous. The evidence on young ones is much more complicated. Making the switch takes longer and is more expensive than is often assumed. On average, countries lose about 20% of their GDP per person in the 25 years after escaping dictatorship. That's relative to their previous growth path, in part because many struggle with the transition to democracy.
1: The democratization is expensive. Uh, Talk us through it. What What are the costs?
3: Overhauling politics shakes the economy in the short term. Countries often need a few goes at democracy before reform sticks. New leaders, different constitutions, that kind of stuff. And there's always a risk that it will end in tears, a coup, a war or an uprising. And they are all very bad for the economy and they make foreign investors flee. For businesses, making big bets on stability is often too much of a gamble. Local ones really don't want to get close to politicians and anger those who will next be in charge. Then there's the cost of winning an election. This can often be more expensive for a government than fixing one. Governments in unstable countries, whether they're autocracies or young democracies, need networks to keep them in power. They need friends in the military, local politicians to drum up support. Often they will pension off old autocrats. And of course, everyone who's helping out needs to be paid in some way. And because winning an election requires so much more popular support, these networks often get bigger and more expensive rather than smaller when the switch to elections is first made.
1: So this is really just a question of of time scale then. Democracy, good, uh, after a bit.
3: So, yeah, after a quarter of a century and assuming crucially that countries manage to make political reform stick and don't get stuck somewhere in the middle, there's a lot of prosperity. Reliable institutions take a long time to build and democratic ones are great eventually. Countries don't finish one day under a military dictator and start the next with a fully formed Supreme Court – But eventually they get civil services that know when to leave the private sector alone, legal systems that protect property rights and thriving charities and universities. Investors often take a long time to be convinced. But democracies do spend more on health and education, which pays off after decades.
1: And if the the transition to democracy is so tough by so many other measures, if things aren't going well economically at the outset, then the, the, the change that people might have been hoping for doesn't seem apparent for really some time.
3: Yes, and young democracies are starting from behind anyway. Mr Asamoglu finds that GDP per person actually tends to stop growing in the five years before a country makes the transition. Think about Suharto, a former dictator in Indonesia. He resigned in 1998. That was just a year after the Asian financial crisis began. In 2011, protesters from the Arab Spring demanded bread, dignity and freedom. Today, once again... Egypt, one of the countries that revolted during the Arab Spring, is brimming with political protests after years of economic crisis. So are Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Political scientists used to believe that economic growth would push people to political reform. Now the opposite seems to be true. Inflation, joblessness and falling living standards push them towards the street. All too often, autocrats are to blame for these problems. But swapping them out or holding an election isn't going to immediately fix decades of economic problems. And that leads to people getting disillusioned, which may also help explain why dozens and dozens of countries are still stuck somewhere short of full democracy. There is a pot of gold at the end of the path to democracy, but walking that path is treacherous.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Karian.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
5: So I went up to the North York Moors in North Yorkshire, which is a beautiful bit of moorland with a very artificial environment.
2: Duncan Robinson is The Economist political editor and writes Badget, our column on British politics.
5: The countryside isn't natural up there. It's man-made, it's controlled by lots of burning, where they burn heather each year, and it creates this very distinctive, rather barren, but still rather beautiful outlook that you'll recognise whenever you see a picture of moorland in the UK. It couldn't really be anywhere else on Earth. And the reason for that is because they have a hobby called grouse shooting, where from August the 12th each year, a lot of quite posh, quite rich people like to shoot a bird called a grouse, that's a nice young grouse. Not wrong with that. Red grouse, the first of the season. And on the moors of northern England, there are plenty to go round. And so Britain has this very unique countryside, mainly so that this one single bird can exist in unnatural abundance. Because of fears, the way they're managed has driven other species almost to extinction. And the reason for that is because grouse shooting has a big hobby lobby.
2: A Hobby Lobby. What is a Hobby Lobby?
5: Britain is full of enthusiastic hobbyists. Grouse shooters are just one example. You also see lots of wild swimmers, you see lots of anglers, you see people who are obsessed with classic cars. And when politics or or legal stuff sort of intervenes, they get very upset when people try and change or interfere with those hobbies. Far more upset than they would over, say, changes to the health service or even things that would be more consequential for their, say, finances. And that means when politicians are thinking about legislating on a topic, they often run scared of hobbyists because they know that they will get tens of thousands of letters and that these people will spend all their time campaigning against this change and may even change their vote based on it. So when it comes to dealing with hobbies, politicians are very, very cautious indeed.
2: And why are grouse hunters such a good example of a powerful Hobby Lobby?
5: Well, it's because it has such an outsized effect. So vast parts of the British countryside are dedicated to grouse shooting. So estimates vary, but it can be as much as 7% of the entire landscape in the UK. And in Scotland, some estimates put it down to 15% of all land. Now, this is not sort of prime arable land. This is sort of upland that would be slightly wasted anyway. But it's a huge, huge footprint for a hobby that isn't done by many people. So there's no official numbers, but estimates guess that around 12,000 people will go grouse shooting. And yet it's a hobby that can account for up to 7% of the landmass of the entire country.
2: Okay, tell me about some other examples of hobby lobbies.
5: A good example of that is the Outdoor Swimming Society. So in 2006, that had about 300 members and it's now got close to 200,000. So it's become massively popular And that means because people are actually swimming in rivers and lakes, they pay a lot more attention to sewage than we used to. There's been a huge amount of stories about sewage being pumped into rivers and lakes in the UK in the past few years. But it's not necessarily because the spills have gone up. In fact, the quality of water in the UK is a lot better than it was in the 1990s, for example. But people care about it far more than they used to because they have this hobby. And that creates a problem for politicians because they now have this dilemma, like fixing Britain's sewers so that they no longer pump, into rivers and lakes after a storm, for example, would cost tens of billions or even hundreds of billions of pounds. And there's now a very loud, noisy caucus of people who want that to happen. And there are lots of other little examples. So there's something called the Campaign for Real Ale, which are just a bunch of beer enthusiasts... But they've been able to overhaul the way that pubs are regulated in the UK and get lots of tax exemptions just because they're sort of a persistent hobby lobby. And you saw it with classic cars as well. So they have a special carve out from this tax that polluting cars have to pay when they go into London. This was immensely politically controversial because, you know, white van drivers would be caught with this expensive fee. It was seen as an attack on the working man. But if you drove a 60-year-old fancy classic car, you were exempt. And it's just because it avoids a fight with this relatively vociferous small group of people and politicians would rather not pick it. Another peculiar example is garden centres. So during the pandemic, all shops had to close. But one of the first shops to be granted the right to reopen was garden centres because there's so many budding horticulturalists in the UK that they were begging for that to happen. This is while the rest of the economy was screaming for exemptions. The government really, really jumped when it came to gardeners just because there's just so many of them and they really care about it.
2: So it's safe to say that the Hobby Lobbies are scaring the politicians a little bit. They
5: do. But a good example would be Tony Blair. Now, Tony Blair's a very canny, charismatic politician with a very good judge of where people are. And in his autobiography, he talked about his big regret. When he was prime minister, he did a lot of controversial things. But the thing he said he regrets most was passing the hunting ban. And the reason for that was just because people cared about it so, so deeply. It just sucked up so much bandwidth from the rest of his government. And so looking back, Tony Blair actually said... If I'd proposed solving the pension problem by compulsory euthanasia for every fifth pensioner, I'd have got less trouble for it. And so that's how potent the Hobby Lobby can be.
2: Duncan, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist's app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all of our podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every day.
2: And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, check out the special offer we've got at the moment. A free 30-day digital subscription. Just head to economist.com slash offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.